If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. You're listening to Joe Hoft on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, good day, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Joe Hoft on the Joe Hoft Show here live at tntradio.live. Glad you're here. Glad uh, you are alive and well. And if you're here, that means you're a patriot and an, and a warrior and someone who, who will work for the truth. And I, I, I commend you. And I, I salute you for all that you're doing, because this is how we get the truth out. We share it at sites like this, and we keep sharing it and sharing it and sharing it to give you the truth. And uh, on the Joe Hoff show, we're not going to be uh, we're not going to be uh, sharing anything but the truth. And that's our that's our goal and our commitment. We're not going to be pushing any other propaganda. We're going to be sticking right to what what uh, is the best that we know from our hearts and our souls. And we will do that day after day after day and uh, encourage you then to follow the show, share the show with others as well as the station in general, uh, but also share the truth as well with those that, uh, that are around you. I think this is how we're winning. We're winning through, we're not winning through the big media. The big media, as we know, is, is corrupt as, as hell. And, um, uh, just propaganda anymore it's very dangerous this is very very dangerous this is this is what we read about when we were we were kids about the uh about what, what happened you know during the fascist uh takeover of germany or what happened if when the communists took over russia and the 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 management of the media and the lies just and silly stuff they'd thrown there that was insane um I think they do that to just keep just to mess with you. I think that's the way it is. It's just these people that are fascists and communists, they hate, they ultimately hate civilization. I liked how Elon Musk said that about George Soros. He hates civilization. That's why he's putting in DAs across the US that are pushing crimes in their cities, that are letting criminals go, but at the same time, then are prosecuting. Uh, policemen and others that are there for justice. This is what's happening now on a grand scale in our country. We've got a Department of Justice that is totally corrupted, uh, bankrupt spiritually, lies every time they they go in front of any any uh, committee uh, in front of Congress. Just lies. Uh, Christopher Ray couldn't lie more. Uh, Merrick Garland could not lie more. They're full-fledged liars. And this is uh, very, very dangerous for our country. They're prosecuting the president of the United States, uh, President Trump, whose election they were involved in stealing. And they um, are trying to shove him in, in prison for something like a thousand years with, with totally uh, bogus cases that that are, they're, 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 they're made up. They're not even crimes. They're manufacturing crimes. And I think they sit back and laugh about this. This is the kind of stuff Andrew Weissman did in the Mueller exam and before in his career, all the way back to Enron, even before that, back to when he was prosecuting uh, mobsters and setting some of these guys up that are sitting in, sitting in prison to this day. It's, um, it's really scary what's been going on in, in this, in this totally uh, corrupt, uh, Justice. We the United States needs a massive overhaul, not little, massive from the bottom to the top, starting at the top, working its way to the bottom. Because 
uh, culture is based on its uh, on the top. There's a, there's a theory that says tone at the top. And if you've got a corrupt individual leading your organization, you're going to have a corrupt organization. That's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. And you could have some great people down below, but they get corrupted because of the top. That's what's happening to our country. That's what has already happened to our Department of Justice. And that's what's happening uh, across the country. So we've got to stand up. We've got to figure out a way how to win the 2024 election. I, to me, that's the ultimate goal. Our goal should be on that. We've got to, we've got to, of course, fight for justice and fight for peace and fight for economic stability and 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 a, and a and a closed border where we're not allowing any more terrorists to come into the country. It's shocking to me every day that goes by that that border is still open like it is. I, I am shocked that um, uh, th with what's going on. And and I would imagine if the group of Americans, the militia went down there, they'd get arrested. That's how bad it is. We've seen we've seen the individuals who are supposedly working for the U.S. government opening up and lifting barbed wire so so people can climb into this country. It's outrageous. This is that's probably a symbol of the evil that's creeping in, and we've got to stand up against it. A couple big breaking news items. One is uh, David Clements, who will be with us Friday. He will be coming out with his movie on Friday. And he's been working on it for some time, his new documentary, Let My People Go. We'll be talking about that with him on Friday. And that's going to be really good. It's a great uh, piece of work. I've already seen it. I'm actually in it. I feel like uh, there's one line that I say in there that I think is uh, really maybe the key point to the movie which is the 2020 election was stolen because it never should have been certified and from a professional auditing background and uh, that's that's absolutely my belief it's the truth this uh, these uh, these elections with these machines processes people and 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 even the supporting uh, documentation are totally totally corrupted they I wouldn't I wouldn't trust them I wouldn't trust any of it and so that's uh, that's why the election was stolen. That's in there, and I'm in there. And so it'll be fun talking to David about that. I just got a piece up at joehoff.com. We'll be putting it up shortly at Gateway Pundit, uh, where we're going to be uh, listing how you can get to that movie. You can go right now to joehoff.com and, 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 and see how you can do that. In addition to that, big news coming out of Georgia. I received information overnight uh, about a... And another incident in the state of Georgia related to the 2020 election. It's just, it just never stops. The massive corruption there never stops. And what was uh, what was reported to me, and I've got it up uh, at JoeHoff.com, is that uh, the uh, the Secretary of State Raffensperger, who was there during the election, who allowed the election to be stolen uh, for Joe Biden, even after Trump's ahead by 200,000 votes uh, at the end of the day on uh, election day. That's when they started shoving ballots through, manufacturing ballots. And and uh, there's three things that are really key in any, in any process, company, financials, or election. And one is the systems that you're using. And we know that the systems were broken in Georgia. We've got a government report that validates that that they're that they're not secure a bad actor could hack in and a bad actor could flip an election that's your systems that's key and if that's happening in the real world you're going to shut it down you're going to shut it down like yesterday it would not be even be put in production a system like the ones we're using in our elections secondary the processes are key and what that means is 
what you know what how are they controlling the ballots for example in an election uh, to ensure that only legitimate ballots make it into the election and that only legitimate ballots are counted and all legitimate ballots are counted and that uh, that what didn't happen and there's all sorts of rationale for that things like uh, there's controls like you would suggest it, the law even in Georgia says that you need to have observers there when you're counting ballots. Well, that didn't happen in 2020. And uh, the people investigated it, allowed that uh, to, to go by. They, 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 they discount that. And that's a, that's a crime in Georgia. And so that the processes were totally broken. Even an individual that was hired by the Secretary of State Raffensperger, his name is Carter, Carter Jones, was there. And he says, he says, you know, basically, the, the whole system's breaking down. This was on election night. I just saw Ralph shove ballots through that Shea just shoved through another tabulator. It's just a mess. And um, so we know that. We know there was there was a mess there process-wise as well, not just systems, processes. But the third thing would be that you'd have support for the numbers and you allow people to see them. But the Secretary of State has been blocking citizens that want to see these 140,000 ballots that they say were all carbon copy, that they weren't folded. There's no way they came through the mail because they weren't even folded. And uh, they were all the same, certainly all for Joe Biden. And uh, they want these, they wanted to audit these ballots and they've been blocked by the Secretary of State and the courts now for three years. And so the three main things in election, especially in Georgia, systems, processes, and, and supporting documentation, they're not there. So, but they're trying to tell us that everything's fine. Well, I mentioned that a little bit in, in David's movie that's coming out, but it is, that's why this, I, I, a good person, a person of integrity never, never would have certified this election. These guys that are certifying it say nothing's wrong. They're just playing, in my opinion, they're just lying. This is just not, it's just not true at all. Uh, all you need to do is have a competent individual just ask them some very simple questions and they'd be folding because it's just unbelievable. Um, so anyways, what we find out in Georgia is that there there was an individual, he's a judge actually, his name's Judge William Duffy. He was on the state's election uh, uh, committee. And what happened was he said that he felt that there needed to be a, an investigation into Raffensperger's office related to 2020. He uh, Push back from the Secretary of State, get Raffensperger's office. Uh, his chief counsel earlier this year wrote him a letter saying, We're not going to set up an investigation on Raffensperger. And she says, I trust you understand, like uh, some sort of mafia boss. Uh, the, uh, the judge uh, who was on this board, of, I believe it's a five member board, um, didn't take no for an answer. He, he decided to uh, see if he could get all his all alternatives in place. He did so. The investigation was set up, and then he resigned and from the board. So he's no longer there, a judge. Anyways, this is coming up next week in in a in in Georgia in Fulton County. And if you're from Georgia in Fulton County, I encourage you to go there and help support the the people of Georgia. Uh, in, in demanding that there be some sort of legitimate investigation into Raffensperger from 2020. Because when you look at all the results there, it never should have been certified. And why did he do that? And and that's the big question. Why did he do that? Because a good person never would have. A man of integrity never would have. So big news there. And um, and then the big, you know, the biggest news uh, for me uh, this morning is uh, David's movie's coming out on on Friday, and it's going to be a blockbuster. And you can get information on that at joehoff.com as well. These hopefully these two articles will be put up at the Gateway Pundit here shortly, as well. So lots going on, 
in in the world uh, in 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 uncovering the truth and that's we're winning because we saw back in april for example that 62 percent of americans believe that the 2020 election was stolen yesterday by the way rasmussen reports and that was a rasmussen reports uh piece yesterday rasmussen reports came out and they said that um they came out with a piece that said one out of five people that handled absentee ballots or that voted with absentee ballots in the 2020 election say that basically their vote was fraudulent one in five it's the wording similar to that one in five unbelievable unbelievable survey the what happened to Rasmussen then they were contacting me Jody you got an IT guy that can help us here because their system got shut down so they came out with this this is breaking news Rasmussen comes out with this big post one in five ballots absentee ballots in the country uh by those who you know voted uh absentee uh was was fraudulent how about that and that was buried because even their site was taken down but here's the beauty Americans are learning Americans aren't going to the mainstream media they're not going to cable news anymore they're coming here and they're going to the gateway pundit and joehoff.com and other places where they know they can get the truth and so it's it's all good we're winning because 60 percent two-thirds of Americans now know that this election was bogus in 2020 and we can see what's going on with President Trump by the way I saw a gateway pundit the numbers of black voters that are jumping on the Trump bandwagon are increasing astronomically it's because all these illegals have been brought in they're destroying their communities as well and these people are saying hey what's going on we had prosperity under Trump we finally had some money in our pocket our savings were growing and now look at this mess and plus we've got uh people that are staying in nice hotels in downtown Chicago and we're all paying for it and of course we can't go in we can't go to investigate this they'll kick you out or arrest you for trying to get to the truth of what's going on behind this massive invasion into our country and I even heard that yesterday from a piece at uh, Bannon's show uh, this guy from overseas saying uh, France is done France is done they've invaded uh too many people have invaded their country it is done Francis the invasion of France is over there's their their country will never ever recover from what they've done and America's going through that right now we need to decide are we going to stand up and stop this and have legitimate immigration or are we going to allow Obama and the goons that are running this country uh to uh continue uh, to break our laws and invade this country with terrorists that's our question lots going on but we've got even more for you we've got we've got coming up Kristen Davis the first interview she's had in more than three years and she's going to be with us here in moments formerly known as the Manhattan Madam Kristen a good friend and a good woman will be with us here in a moment hang tight TNT Radio's Chris Smith. Despite being used to protect travellers from terrorists, hijackers or violent drunks or those who were drugged out as they board, and this has been going on since 1961, they won't be around this Thanksgiving. None of them. Air marshals were always meant to be invisible. Well, you can guarantee that this Thanksgiving. Ironically, the Biden administration has been hijacking air marshals for all kinds of other duties, leaving the passengers they were meant to 
guard and protect completely helpless. Air marshals have been lumbered with assisting the chaos on the southern border. They might be called air marshals, but an unknown number are now seconded to work on the ground. Maybe they're ground marshals now, marshalling illegal immigrants on the border and doing the job supposedly meant for the United States Customs and Border Protection. Where are they? Chris Smith on TNT Radio. I wanted to alleviate my pain. I also didn't want to be who I was. I always just felt like there was just something wrong with me and I was trying to figure it out and I used the internet to help me do that. Seemingly out of nowhere, we've suddenly seen a huge spike in media depictions and social media depictions of transgenderism. It's even reached the mainstream advertising world. The people who are consuming this are children, 13, 14, 15 years old, and it's so easy for them to literally be groomed. I just woke up one day, looked at myself in the mirror, and asked myself, what the heck am I doing? When trans-identified kids are referred to specialized gender clinics, they're often told that they're going to get comprehensive, multidisciplinary mental health assessments. We know that that's not true. I was easy to manipulate. The ideology that has become dominant at these clinics is that trans kids know who they are, and therefore to question them is completely taboo. My childhood was ruined. Who's there for their detransitioning? Nobody. Nobody would help me because they had more concerns of me reversing everything. Did this thing to alleviate this gender dysphoria that wasn't there before, but you made it into a problem, and now your body image issues are worse. That's not supposed to happen. What do we do now? D-Trans, the dangers of gender-affirming care. For more information, go to PragerU.com. Caution. You are about to, about to hear today's news talk and the voice of freedom. That's what this country is all about. TNT Radio. We are back here on the Joe Hoff Show live uh, with good friend and super guest and doing her first interview perhaps in more than three years and she selected the joe hoff show to to, uh to uh, break that streak and she's with us today miss kristen davis kristen welcome to the joe hoff show thanks for having me joe i'm honored that you asked um haven't done an interview for years so here we are Fantastic. Thanks so much. And I should probably share some some things with our audience. I, I met you a couple years ago uh, when I was d- doing a radio station and uh, you were representing some of my some of the guests that we had. And I think Roger, maybe Roger Stone. I can't remember some others for sure. And um, you just were so nice and kind. And uh, and I, t- I remember talking to you about various various things going on and and you were so supportive and you had some great ideas. You understood this business really, really well and uh, gave me, yeah, gave me some great advice. And then um, I've wrote a couple books on the 2020 election and uh, my both my second book and third book, I wanted to promote them. And I'm like, this girl, Kristen, she seems to know a lot of people. So I asked you if you would help me in promoting my book and you did, and you did a fantastic job. You got me on numerous shows and 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 really got my my name and my book out there and really helped me push sales in my book and so I'm eternally grateful for that Kristen you were just a great friend and um and then I got to know you a little bit you've got quite the history you sent me some more documents last night some uh, even video clips 
just, I'm like, you know, I was just like, wow, I didn't, you know, I didn't know too much about you, but it was, it was just fascinating, I guess. And it starts off, if you go to your Wikipedia page, it starts off, you graduate from high school, doesn't it say first in your class at a very young age, right? I did. I did. Yeah. I went to private school. Um, I went to work immediately after because I was raised, you know, very poor and there was no money for college. So, you know, I had this um, rush to get into the workforce to kind of, you know, have a better life. So I ended up, you know, in finance. And at that time, uh, you know, a million years ago, not going to age myself, but a million years ago, in there were two choices in the Bay Area. I moved to, I lived in the Bay Area, and it was like dot com or finance. And I, I was uh, very good at math, so I thought that finance would be a better fit for me. And dot com, all the dot com things were new, right? Everybody was getting their funding uh, on Sand Hill Road in Menlo Park. So um, I started a, a finance career at a very, before I was even 18, you know, before I was 18. And then I, I, I lucked out, you know, some of my first bosses were so lovely. They paid for my college education. They bought me a car, you know, they kind of, cause I, here I am, I came from Fresno, California, small farming, you know, uh, at that time, small farming town. And I moved to San Francisco and like, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I've never had Thai food or sushi. And, you know, they live this very extravagant um, lifestyle. So I was introduced to a lot of things which sort of set me on my, you know, my path. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Before you're even 18, you're doing that. I mean, it's just really um, put you in a real special class. There's not many people that can say, well, nobody can, you know, really share uh, your story at all it's it's brilliant but um man i just i i so i heard that just blown away hedge funds uh, making money sounds like you made some really good money and then stepped into some bigger jobs even after that was it all out in california or you moved to new york or no so you know i um i was in san francisco and i you know this is some um, 25 years ago you know there weren't very many women in finance then um, I worked for a group of New Yorkers. Uh, we, I, I worked for my first hedge fund for about six years, and then I went to a couple different ones in San Francisco. And then, you know, I think I was maybe 28, and I thought, you know, where am I going now? Um, you know, I'm at the the. I was a vice president where I was, um, and that's about it for San Francisco. You know, it's not the finance epicenter of the world like New York. So I. Um, I started looking at New York and I went to visit and I fell in love with New York City. It was a different place 25 years ago, you know, it was full of artists and all kinds of cool things. And, um, and I thought I networked my way to New York and I got a job on Wall Street. Um, I worked on Wall Street for a few years. I was executive vice president of a $2 billion hedge fund. But I was in the back office, right? So the back office is the accounting. I'm doing derivatives processing for securities, um, you know, taking care of the accounting uh, for a time-weighted rate of return on the investor level um, for billions of dollars. 
And there was nowhere to go from there, right? I'm executive vice president, like the guys that make the real money, they're in the front office. Um, I'm in the back office. They all look down on me because I ended up getting, you know, I did go to college. I went and worked full time. I did all these things, um, you know, but I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I went to St. Mary's, which was the perfect school for me. Uh, but you've got all these guys from, you know, Princeton and Yale, and they, you know, think they're better than you because of their education and because they're also making the firm, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in trading. And I'm not doing those things. So, you know, I think part of that led me onto the path of where I ended up, right? There's a, you know, a, a culm culmination of things that contributed to, you know, where I ended up. Hmm. So you're, you know, but your your story up to this point is just, it's tremendous success. And probably at a young age, didn't even, you didn't, maybe didn't even know it. I mean, there's a lot of people who, if they said, this is my career, and then they retired, they'd be really proud of that story. Sure, <laughs> super success. And um, that, so. It's funny you say that because I literally, you know, you're, you're so self-aware, Joe. I literally thought the same thing when I was there. And I thought, why am I so unhappy? Like, this is what everyone dreams of. I have a high rise apartment in Manhattan and I'm making a bunch of money and I'm young and I can do anything I want. But I think it comes down to, you know, I was really unhappy. Like, you know, the reality of finance in New York is you're working from, you know, seven o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock at night. You don't see, you know, your apartment. You don't have much of a social life unless it's, you know, related to work things. And, you know, I, you know, and I can tell you, uh, you know, I took a lot of crap from men in finance, like a whole ton, you know, uh, uh, I mean, I started when I was young before there were like, you know, sexual harassment laws before HR started getting into all these different things. And, you know, I would have, you know, all kinds of bad things, right? They would leave me little notes on my desk, traders. I mean, there was all kinds of just inappropriate, awful behavior. And some of that behavior was like, you know, some of my, not my first job, but my second job, and maybe a little of my first. Um, you know, they asked me, uh, we had a, a day when one of our companies we owned a few million shares in was bought out and um, had a merger, share price increase like $7, everybody's over the moon, we're going to Vegas, book us some girls, Kristen. And I'm like, what does that mean? You know, I'm like a young, a young, naive girl you know and i'm like girls what does that mean like i mean they had their vi this is before you know these things were heavy heavily on the internet and you know i had to call a vip host at caesars get this room get a jet you know find girls and i'm like what does this mean and they're like you'll figure it out call the vip host and so that was just something you know having let's say escorts and not so much strippers but mostly escorts it was something that was introduced to me young and it was introduced to me. And I think this is important in a capacity where it was equated with success. Like we do this in a respectful way 
because we just made a lot of money and it's how we celebrate. And so my introduction into, you know, the sex work industry was done from a way where these guys like coveted this. It's like something they look forward to. It's something we do when we make money. It's a Crete or, you know, and so I watched them, Mm. you know, also write these off with hedge fund money (laughs) as, as business expenses. But I watched this for years and it wasn't one firm. It was all the firms and they spent $30,000 over a weekend. And I was floored and they came back and I would say, well, like, how was your trip? And they, they would say, Oh, we had the best time. Thanks. You got us these great girls. It was so amazing. And, you know, so I think people have some, some views misconceptions about the sex industry, especially because of what we have now with OnlyFans and the whole world has changed with the internet. But, you know, my introduction was very, very different from what most people would expect. Well, the thing that grabs me is you probably didn't see anything like this growing up, right? You're saying you're from Fresno. You, uh, you know, it probably wasn't something part of your family, I, I guess. And and all of a sudden, you super successful, young, very smart, very pretty, and wanting to fit in. And that that need, I heard, I actually heard Tucker Carlson say this here about a week before he got fired from Fox. He was giving a talk at Heritage. He says, you know, we all have this need for sex, food, but he says the biggest need that I think humans have is for to be part of, to be part of that group. We all want to be part and, and we will do things in order to become part of that group. And I thought, man, he is so spot on. And he was talking about COVID and how people will do you know, they wear masks, they'll shun people, they're, they'll take vaccines, they'll do all sorts of stuff just to fit in. They don't want to be an outlier. They don't want to cause a stir. And um, and to me, that's maybe part of this story is you were, you were to, I, I see you as probably a young, young, beautiful woman, very smart. And then you were thrown into this thing. And you're probably too also thinking this is pretty normal. And maybe, maybe it was in, in the businesses you were in and the businesses I was in, I worked in Midwest and, uh, and then overseas didn't see a lot of that. Never seen an app and never seen an event. Now I was an auditor, so maybe they just kicked me out of this stuff, but I never saw an event where they brought in a bunch of escorts, any escorts for that matter. So, so to me, this is kind of foreign for you sounds like this was this was just leading you into this industry and making it normal and you're in this you're this young woman beautiful trying to fit in wanting to be part of the group and all of a sudden this was thrown on you so this changed your life didn't it i mean this this was this was well, it was it became normal because this is just what you know what they did i mean it was like working i worked for the wolf of wall street all you know in in that era all the finance guys were like that right like that was just common and you know and and they were all very kind to me you know they would make a lot of money and they'd be like here we bought this and they they did it for everyone in the office you work for a small fund you know they're coming back with prada suits for you and purses and all kinds of things um so it became very normal and then 
when I got to New York, I saw more of them involved with drugs. New, you know, drugs seem to be cocaine and the hours they worked were, were Californians are very healthy, not so much in New York. Um, and, you know, there came a point in time when I had this, you know, great office, I had a corner office, I had windows, I had 40 people reporting to me, I'm miserable. Um, part of that misery comes from, um, you know, uh, being under constant control of these people, right? So there's there's a so a lot of childhood trauma that ha that I've healed, and that led me down a path to, um, you know, maybe having some bad uh, bad behavior patterns, which is sort of like you know, and I said I have a little of them now. I don't like to be controlled, right? I don't like to be told what to do, and I got to the point in finance where you know, I was, I was, have this great office and I'm watching people be dishonest. So I got into an argument with a hedge fund manager who was one of our big, big clients. I'm working at a third party administrator and he's trying to get me to change the valuation on one of his, uh, you know, un, unregulated securities. And you understand this, Joe. And I'm like, no, mm -hmm. I can't give you that valuation. You give me documentation on why I'm going to overinflate your investment. You're losing money. And I got into a very heated conversation with him. And my boss took his side. Rather than I'm I'm telling him, listen, he's he is this is a fraud. You cannot, we cannot report this. I'm not signing off. I used to sign off. It was my name on the SEC reports right? I'm not doing that. I'm not filing this. And, you know, I got into a very uh, heated conversation with my boss and he was like, well, you can either sign off on it or, you you know, you can resign. And I was like, yeah. I'm not doing that. I'm going to resign. And he's not the first hedge fund manager that I have seen manipulate certain unregulated securities to make their performance look better. And so now, you know, you took this young girl who, you know, has some trauma and you introduce her to the world of, you know, the sex work and there's some drugs. I never did drugs, but I, I definitely watched people using them. And now you're trying to be dishonest with money. And I think at that point in time, when I resigned, I basically was like, you know what? what am I going to do? You know, there was, I had some family issues where I felt like I needed money to support, you know, my, to help with some family issues. And I, you know, thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start an escort agency, you know, and I, that wasn't actually the, the path, the path actually led me back to a finance job. Um, Cause I had another offer competing, like an offer, you know, uh, recruiters are looking all the time for people. So I had an offer. So I actually stayed in finance, but I had that thought then. And I went to a firm and I thought, you know what, maybe I should still pursue this. And I just had no idea how to do it. So I randomly placed an ad on Craigslist just to see at that time, if that's how you could find women. Cause I'm like, how do I find people to work for me? I have no idea what to do about this. And I was fired from that job. So I, I, I took that as like, okay, this is a sign. You're supposed to open this, this agency. And, uh, and I did. And I, um, 
I lost money. I didn't make any money. You know, people are like, oh, you must have just, no, I had no idea what I was doing. I'm a California girl in New York. And, you know, my version of, you know, girls who should also work for me and how a website should work is based off of a California standard of beauty, not a New York standard of beauty, which is very, very, very different. And so I had a website, I had all these things going and I had no, no clients. And I, I Mm. hired a woman to do my phones who had some, a lot of experience. And she said, listen, your, your website's awful. Your marketing is awful. This is New York city. The look in, in Manhattan is model-esque, tall, slender, brunette. Don't ever hire a bra, a blonde, like the exact opposite of you. And I said, Okay. And I, I took her advice. I placed some ads in New York magazine back in that day used to take ads. And all of a sudden the phone was ringing and I was overwhelmed with clients. So that was the start of it. So that was the difference between New York and California. You mentioned that. So that was fascinating to me because I was like, what do you mean? She's like, one, don't ever hire anyone with implants and don't hire any you know, any blondes. And I mean, she was really right. I made a lot of money, you know, New York is about, and I guess I probably should have figured that out a bit because the finance guys, you know, led that. And it's very, you know, they have that whole trend in the clubs, models and bottles. And it's, you know, if you're over five, seven and thin, you know, you can, you get a lot of privileges in New York. So, um, so I changed the whole business wow. and then all of a sudden we were off to the races. It was it was an interesting to mm-hmm. to watch. Yeah, I remember uh years ago there was a episode for some Swiss refinance guys in, in the reinsurance industry got got caught. They had maybe spent a hundred thousand dollars on some event, uh some night out really. And um and they they Tried to push it through his expenses and somehow it made the news made the new you know news and then it was sprayed all over everybody's like what what hundred thousand in one night and you know i was like that's that was pretty amazing so you know right. again being from the midwest but so this thing you jumped into this probably around what 2009 10 and then you started building an agency uh, this, this was or 2005 and then within the first year, um, you know, because part of the problem in that industry, at least for, you know, my business, um, was keeping the girls happy. You know, how can I, uh, and, you know, they make a lot of money very quickly. And so they change their expectations. And so all of a sudden they're like, well, I only made 5000 this week. I'm used to 25000 this week. And... So how can I continue that? And part of that was to branch out, right? So I I started with, you know, New York and then I I I went to, you know, Boston and Philadelphia and DC and you know, the next thing you know, it's um 2000 maybe mid 2006 and I've got like 120 girls and apartments in five or six cities and I'm over in Uruguay. I had a call center I set up overseas to try to reduce, you know, the costs of the phones because now I've got, you know, 
10 different phone lines and it's just ringing off the hook all the time. So, uh, yeah, so, wow. so probably by, we were at our height, 2006, 2007, and then I was arrested in 2008 in March. Wow. Well, let's pause on that. We're going to take a real quick break and we'll come back to talk to you, Kristen, about what happened from that point forward. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll be right back with Kristen Davis. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. That's our Fourth Amendment. Thank heavens and the founders that we have it. Why? Well, let's look at Ireland. They're trying to ram through a bill before Christmas that would authorize the Guardi to enter a house and seize any electronic devices they found if the government somehow found something objectionable, whether liking the wrong post on social media, making the wrong comment, or visiting the wrong website. That is the very definition of tyranny, and it's why we fought a war to throw it off. Hopefully, the Irish will figure out the importance of banning government intrusion like this before it's too late for them. And hopefully, we in the United States never lose sight of how important it is to keep the government at bay. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT. JDRF's vision is to create a world without type 1 diabetes. The Type 1 Diabetes community is at the heart of everything JDRF does. We were founded by the Type 1 Diabetes community. In the main, we are governed by the Type 1 Diabetes community, we're energised by the Type 1 community, and we're accountable to the Type 1 Diabetes community. It's on their behalf that we exist, and it's on their behalf that we must succeed. JDRF exists to rid the world of type 1 diabetes. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. So for us, that means rallying all the resources and all the people and all the organisations required to make that a reality as quickly as possible. The world's best researchers, exciting innovative companies and the passion of the type 1 diabetes community then delivered through the health system so lives get better every day, day after day, until the day we find a cure. To everybody in the type 1 diabetes community, no matter your age or stage with the disease, whether you were diagnosed recently or a long time ago, we need you to know that we are here working on your behalf to deliver a world without type 1 diabetes as quickly as we can. Thank you to everybody who supported JDRF in so many ways. You are making our vision of a world without type 1 diabetes possible. This is The Joe Hoff Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hey, we're back. I'm with Kristen Davis here. Uh, Kristen, fantastic story already. Really getting, we really kind of cut off right around 2009. You mentioned how you it got into the uh, the, the sex business, and then then all of a sudden, some you know all the thing was things were good. It sounds like you were making a lot of money, and then and then then maybe things changed. What 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 happened? I was making a lot of money, which is a things people always like to hear. Like I probably made 10 million my my best year. Um, my client list was 10,000, over 10,000. Um, you know, towards the end of 2007, I was trying to shut down um, because I just, I, I watched 
something that I really, I watched my business get toxic. I watched it, it affect the girls' lives and I really wanted to shut down. And, and one of the managers who worked for me was sort of begging me to just turn everything over to her um, because they, you know, they didn't want to lose their income. So I was trying to figure out a way to do it where I could still employ, like do something where I could still give girls a job that worked for me. And by, and I hadn't quite figured it out, um, but uh, I was arrested. So Elliot Spitzer, former governor of New York, um, he was caught with a girl that I, that also worked for me. And, um, and when he got caught, I knew I was going to get arrested. I knew it because he had wired me a lot of money over the years, my bank accounts. And he had been a client and I was like, oh, I'm going down because they're, they definitely want him and he hasn't resigned yet and I'm going to get arrested. So I got an attorney because I told my attorney, listen, I shut everything down. I told my attorney, listen, I want to turn myself in. I know it's coming. Like my intuition is never wrong. It's coming. And I hired this awful attorney. Yeah. He, uh, I, I paid him a lot of money. I told him to turn me in. He took all of my credit card receipts. He took everything I had and he did nothing. And, and, and all of a sudden one day I come home from the gym, you know, I'm in my Ugg boots. I'm in like, you know, some winter gear, some yoga pants and I'm in my apartment and there's a knock at the door. And I, my boyfriend at the time was, you know, I said, can you open the door get the, you know, get the door. We lived in a doorman building. So it was weird anyways and um he looks out the people and he says it's the SWAT team Kristen what do you want me to do I said listen I'm like however many floors up 18 floors up open the door what am I going to do jump out the window and run open the door and they came in you know just like Roger Stone right maybe even worse full SWAT gear um, there were helicopters outside in Manhattan at least 40 they had wow. all the streets blocked off for like six blocks. I mean, there were row after row. And I walked out. First, they handcuffed me. They wouldn't tell me the charges. They handcuffed me um, here and then around the waist and my ankles. So I'm taken out of my building like I'm some, you know, cartel member and walked out in shackles. And they put me in the back of a, of a van and as I look up, there are like two helicopters. And I, I really thought to myself, wow, this is this is extreme. Like, I mean, I'm a nonviolent first time offender. How could you? I mean, this is a this is a political show, right? This is done for a reason. Mm. And, you know, I got to court the next day. They they um, it was an awful night. They took me back and forth to Rikers trying to check me in and they couldn't. So there was no sleep. I slept on a, a bench in the precinct. Um, and then I went to court the next day. And it was then when, you know, really reality hit me because they basically said, well, you know, $2 million bail. And I'm like, for me? What? And it was $2 million cash or $4 million secured with property. And at that point in time, I knew, like, I'm not getting out of Rikers. Like, they seized all my assets. Everything I had was frozen. Um, they took me. I didn't know where I was going. They ended up taking me to Rikers. And, you know, as I sat there in in 
in a cell with, you know, 15 women and a toilet with maggots in it and food overpiling and flies. I really thought to myself, okay, I'm not getting out of here soon because this was this was done because of my one, my connection to Spitzer and two, the other politicians on the client list. And they want, you know, they're trying to break me and or scare me, which they did, you know, scare me into keeping quiet. Otherwise, why, you know, out of out of all these types of crimes, mine had the highest bail. No one in the history of these crimes had a bail at my level. So I went, well, this is this is how it's going to go. And then I sat there in solitary confinement for three and a half months. So, oh, and that's where the name came out. They named you Manhattan Madam. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I read about it. All of the madams have to have some cool moniker to make it media worthy and to mm. keep talking about us. So I read about it, you know. And I, I was in Rikers and one of the officers slipped the New York Post under my door and I was on the cover and I went, wow, like, uh, how, do they, how, how do they even know about me? I mean, there were reporters when I left the precinct before I even went to the arraignment hearing the next day. How do you know about this? I just, the whole thing was, you know, my mom didn't know what I was doing. She thought I was still in finance. Um, you know, she read about it in the paper and then the, the LA daily news drove to Fresno to interview her awful heartbreaking. I broke her heart. Um, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a definitely, a, a you know, a difficult time. Oh my. Yeah. The unbelievable. Yeah, sure. Wow. What a story, my Lord. And so uh, I guess then you had some sort of hearing. And what was your crime? Is it, uh, so one count of promoting what? prostitution in the third degree and a money laundering charge, but the money laundering charge was dropped. And so I was, you know, let out. Um, they dropped, let's, everyone, so that everyone knows how the criminal justice system works. They wanted my money. And I had a lot of money overseas. In order to get out on bail, I had to transfer it back in. And then in order to, um, you know, let the case be finalized, I had to sign over all of my assets. And wow. I ha happily did that because I didn't want to go to prison. I didn't want to, you know, I mean, I, I know I committed a crime. I never fought it. I never tried to make a media spectacle out of it. I just said, okay, I know what I did is wrong. You know what? I made my own bed. I knew that going into this, I'm going to take my lumps, take my money and move on. And that's basically what, what I did. Wow. What a story. I mean, really? And, and at that age, you know, you weren't even, uh, um, you know, you weren't even um, 30. I think I was like 30. Yeah. 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 I was like, right. Before, yeah. It was, I was, my God, yeah. you've had two or three lives by that time. <laughs> so, so there's a lot more I know that goes on in between this. And I met you a couple of years ago and you've, like I mentioned, you've helped me so much. You've got a great skill set in connecting people. That's what hit me. You know, people and you know how to connect them and uh, like no other. And it's a great asset in politics. And so 
like where are you now we're gonna obviously hopefully we can get you back on here you know someday soon to kind of finish this story between whatever 2010 to today but um so where are you now and um and yeah yeah what's what's what i know there's a lot in between but maybe you can kind of uh, fill us in right. briefly well, on how we got here today. so on a radio show in 2009 when i was um doing some promotion for my book that i did um i met roger stone and he proposed the idea of running for governor of new york as a protest candidate and i i said no but he lobbied me like he says he lobbied trump you know he was looking for a racehorse for the race and he lobbied me for about six months and I ended up saying yes. And then fast forward, give you the short version to now, right? So I made all these media connections through my own story, through personal relationships, people covering my story. Chris Cuomo was, you know, the man on the street at ABC. He was in front of the courthouse when I left every time I went to court. So I made personal relationships. They were all actually very kind to me because they thought that what happened to me was ridiculous considering that the governor um, now has a radio show or whatever it is he had at that time when he resigned. So I made a lot of, um, you know, alliances and friends and, um, you know, fast forward, I, I continued to work with Roger, right? I've represented Roger as a publicist for 15 years. Um, and that sort of took me on a very eye-opening political journey, which I have to say, you know, my old industry is far more honest than politics. It's actually probably much more honest than anything else I've seen from hedge funds to politics. Like here, you know, money is exchanged for a service to consenting adults. Now you get into politics and it, it helps my my skill set helps a bit because I was a criminal to see it's nothing but criminals. I see it almost immediately. I see when people say something, what their real intent is. I mean, it, it's it's actually, you know, very interesting to me. Um, so now I have a PR firm. I've had last year I had Giuliani. I've worked with Flynn. You know, I did some of the Anthony Fauci book. I represented Roger Stone for, for many years, Judge Napolitano, who I met as a libertarian in my run, who is a dear friend. So, you know, I've had the, you know, my experience helped me get the skills in order to see, to one, have, you know, tenacity, and two, to be able to screen the media in the right way, because they certainly set me up a few times and I've had bad interviews and I've been treated poorly. So it gave me a lot of the skills I needed to be a successful uh, publicist for people. And now I just, you know, primarily do do the people that I like to help them, you know, fight for the things I also care about. Thank you, because I put myself in that category. Kristen, your story's amazing and you've, you've really just succeeded. We talked about shame and how we have to deal with that. We all deal with that. Maybe we can get into that in the future. But, you know, God bless you. You've been, a, you know, like I've said, you've really blessed me and helped me in a lot of ways. I'm, I'm grateful that you popped into my life. And we'll catch up with you again very soon here at the Joe Hoff Show. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow uh, with Roger Stone on the Joe Hoff Show.